0: Alright, so, last week we started a rather controversial series on, you know, the topic of homosexuality in the Bible, you know, throughout the Bible, particularly now as we move into the New Testament, you know, in the New Testament, and just what that, what that looks like in our culture, and what it looks like for a culture, you know, to influence Christianity, you know, and then again, as, as that is as opposed to the plumb line of God, which remains tried and true and has for thousands of years. You know, um, we we actually started peeling off very specifically and more than just the topic of homosexuality in the Bible, we started tackling the eight specific scriptures that were adjusted or re-edited by the editors or the translators of the Queen James Bible. The Queen James Bible being... Uh, an honorific term for the King James, you know, back in the day, who they say was bisexual. I, I believe there's probably some credible historical evidence that he was, in fact, uh, but I can't say that with certainty. I didn't bother, you know, I didn't bother getting into that bit of research. It just seems to uh, trip a memory of something I had read at one point in time. But but nonetheless, so that we've tackled these eight verses, and obviously it came you know it came pretty clear last week that a number of the things that have been changed I'm not particularly happy about you know that it's not good exegesis of the bible and uh, that it became clear to me in my pursuit of of looking at these various scriptures that uh, it was more based out of uh, personal motive you know than it was the due diligence of searching thoroughly through the scriptures you know and coming to a good conclusion so you know it's, uh, I, I do want to say, though, again, before we get started, just as a point of reminder, look, there is nothing wrong with challenging the Word of God. Like, it's, it's actually our due diligence to challenge the Word of God. And in fact, we find that a number of scriptures, particularly the epistles, that they were written to a specific church with specific questions within a very specific cultural context. So, you know, it does behoove us to actually look into that, that, that cultural background, that context. I mean, otherwise, you get something like this, you know, Paul admonishes, is that the women should remain silent in church. Now, apart from that, just being an outstanding idea, you know, you know, we know that in our research, that our research has yielded that this was a very specific cultural statement to a very specific cultural issue at that time. I mean, after all, right, ladies, you tell me, you testify to me. If we told you that from the moment you walked through the church doors that you had to remain silent, that that's what the Bible said, right? And so you get the the worship before the Lord, and you just like. You know, because you can't, you know, you got to be silent in the church. And you get to the inn and you get the meat of the word and, you know, and that's all done. And then you have the fellowship with your ladies, but you can't do that here. You actually have to go out the door to do that. The moment you left the door, you would explode. People would die. And I don't want want fragments of women on me, right? And and like, if this was the literal interpretation of what Paul was talking about, I guarantee you this, the man would have had a whole lot more to clean up than what he has to clean up, you know, theologically in reference to the statement he made. So look, we know that the context of Scripture, again, particularly as it relates to the epistles and a very specific circumstance, we know that it warrants our due diligence in Scripture in thoroughly investigating the topics that are presented to us to come to God's conclusion. What was really being said? Now the problem exists when we go through this and we use this then as a platform to jump off and make corrections to the scripture that do not coincide with the whole of the word. Look, the epistles say something, but they say something that's in conjunction with everything else that the message of the entirety of Bible, both Old Testament and New Testament, is in wholehearted agreement of. So the problem, again, it comes in when we come to a conclusion that is not based or not supported by the whole of Scripture. I believe that that's what we see in these arguments. You know, last week we ended in Romans chapter 1, and I talked about three dominating arguments that are out there right now for this argument. And, and to be honest, Romans chapter 1 is like the biggest, it's the biggest set of scriptures that are challenged, that are re-edited. In the case of the Queen Jane's Bible, you know, they had the most massive overhaul of those scriptures. There are three main arguments in the scripture regarding Romans chapter 1. You'll recall from last week's teaching that that the scripture in Romans chapter 1 is actually kind of the outfall of a sinful group of people, of of a culture that's actually moving away from God and moving into sin. And then we talked about the different things where God turned them over to their lusts. You know, there were three or four different things that God said very specifically where he turned them over. And then you see the whole list of sins of which homosexuality was on the list. You know, so what we're seeing is the downfall of a society that literally is removing themselves from God. And so within that context, Context We talked about that number one, they would say that the remarks within Romans chapter one that seem to implicate homosexuality as a sin on the list, that it would be actually a, a separate thing. That what's talk, what it's talking about is homosexuality within the very specific context of idolatry, of pagan worship. Of course we know from the historical backdrop that this was happening. Look, there were male prostitutes, there were female prostitutes, which is interesting. We talked about that last week. I don't want to get into this very much, but there is a historical backdrop whereby it would warrant investigating that particular interpretation. If you weren't here last week, I encourage you to get the series. It's, you know, it's online on NB3 for free. That's just our gift to you, you know, and, and it is available for you. I want you to take a look at that argument, you know, if you need further proof, if you will, as to, you know, why that doesn't line up. So the second one is that they say, well, no, this isn't homosexuality, particularly it isn't monogamous homosexual relationships, rather this is actually talking about having sex with young boys. Now, this is an argument that if you get into this, uh, you get into this area, you'll actually hear this argument quite a bit. It's one that we'll talk about very specifically today, and with that, ladies and gentlemen, I want to give you a warning. I know that we have sixth graders in here. Some of the material that I'll go over today will be a bit graphic in nature. I don't know any other way to present it to you in light of the fact that I had hours and hours and hours of investigating two very specific words in their original text, in their original context, and throughout Greek literature of that time period, I mean hours and hours. And as a result of that, in order for me to break down exactly the intent of those words within the scripture, I'm going to have to be a slightly graphic, so be forewarned in that. You know, but, but again, the second most dominant interpretation of this particular passage in Romans chapter 1 is men having sex with young boys. Look. The first thing that we always want to do when we're attempting to interpret the text is that we want to look at the context of the verses that surround that text, right? And within this one, you'll recognize right there, right in Romans chapter 1 and verse 27, it clarifies, 26 and 7 very specifically, it clarifies, look, the issue isn't men with little boys or women with little boys or little girls. That, that, that's not the issue. That in context, this specific issue is actually men with men, and women with women. So the text itself clarifies this particular point and automatically overrules any kind of interpretation that we would have, you know, that this is about young men or ultimately that it's about some sort of molestation. So, you know, nowhere in the text, neither in English nor in the Greek, do we find any reference at all to this being a reference to men having sex with boys. Now, the third uh, most dominant translation there of Romans chapter 1 is that we have uh, controversies surrounding what we consider to be natural. You know, this is something that's getting uh, a a lot more attention. It's getting, you know, people are uh, leaning into this argument much more heavily as we move on. And it's the idea that this, look, what is natural for a homosexual is natural for a homosexual. What is natural for a heterosexual is natural for them. In other words, a heterosexual male, you know, should be dating women. A homosexual male should be dating men. That's what's natural for them. Now, the only issue they would say that we have is when you're cross pollinating. When you have a homo- or, excuse me, when you have a heterosexual male who now has decided to go after men. You know, they call this strange flesh, or you know, there are a number of different things that are cited in reference to this. And so. Um, yeah, so that's the, that's the third most dominant. I, I think the scripture has a lot to say about that, actually. And the, you'll recall throughout the, the New Testament, throughout the Gospels particular, that Jesus actually spoke to this topic, you know, not specifically within the context of homosexuality, but as he's talking to the Pharisees who were, again, trying to trap him, he actually makes some references to marriage and to what it looks like, and to what is moral. And I believe that those references that he gave to the Pharisees upon their attack have much bearing on this particular topic. You know, what does the Bible say is natural? I understand the logic that homosexual, what is natural for them, would be to go, you know, for another homosexual of the same sex. Look, that makes sense to me in terms of the argument. Does it make sense to us in terms of what the Scripture says about what we consider to be natural? Okay, so we see that dialogue in, in Matthew chapter 19, starting in verse 4. And it says he answered and said this is Jesus speaking Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female And said for this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh So they are no longer two but one flesh for What therefore God has joined together let no man separate you know, how many times have you heard me over the last several years make the reference that if you want to see God's original intent for the planet, for you, for what you can do, for what is possible, for your relationship with Jesus Christ, if you want to see his original for, uh, intent rather for that, then we have to go all the way back to Genesis and look at Adam and Eve. Look, and Jesus is making this very same argument. If you want to know what God's will is on this subject, we have to go all the way back to the very origin of the human race. And in that place, God gives a very specific command to you and I. Go and multiply. Now, not only does he delineate and say that it's for a male and it's for a female, he further adds very clear directive to them to then go and multiply something, I'm afraid, that a male and a male and a female and a female cannot do. So by the nature of this sin, by the nature of this activity, it would exclude them from the ability to be able to carry out the commands of Scripture, of which have not been pulled back. There's nowhere in the entire Bible that says, oh, by the way, that's fulfilled. That's why we have children today. Otherwise, you would not be bald and you wouldn't go gray ever. It's just part of the process. So, and apparently for me and my house, we're not done. We just continue. So... <laughs> We actually see Paul bring clarity to this as well. He kind of confirms what we're talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. He says, "...now concerning the things which, which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman." But because of immoralities, and this particular word in the original language means sexual immorality, because of fornication, because of sex outside of marriage of any kind, because of, again, sexual immorality, each man is to have his own wife, each woman is to have her own husband. So what is the solution that Paul proposes that we move into to help us keep from sexual sin? That a man would marry a wife that a wife would marry a husband. Look, this would have been, considering that homosexuality is a sexual sin by nature, considering that to be the case, wouldn't this have been a very, very good time for Paul to say, you know, no, again, let me say it a different way, note that he makes no allowance for removing yourself from sexual sin by allowing homosexuals to marry, and again, what they would consider natural. There is no allowance in the text. If you want to flee sexual immorality, then you as a male should marry a female. The solution that he gives is not to say a male should marry a male if you want to remove yourself from sin. Are you following that? So in my estimation, the Bible is clear on what God considers to be natural and thereby you know, their idea of the third translation of that text out of Romans chapter 1 is debunked just by the nature of what the whole of Scripture has to say about the topic. So the next adjustment that we see in Scripture is out of 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 9 and 10. And do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators... So there we see the blanket statement, anybody in sexual sin, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So the first word that we want to come to, the word that's uh, some uh, contentious interpretation is the word for effeminate. In our culture, when we as men, as we as women, as a culture, when we hear the word effeminate, we immediately think of a girly guy. Am I wrong? we immediately think of the guy who's, who's a little, he leans a little bit more female than male, you know, uh, in his expression. You know, maybe it's a guy who even, you know, maybe wears women's shoes or whatever, you know what I mean? But he's like, he's, he just leans a little bit into feminine attributes and that's not exactly what this word actually means. And so, but because of our cultural interpretation of the word effeminate and because we tend to apply definition to the scripture based on our culture, you know, this becomes a point of contention, obviously, you know, for those who are editing based on homosexual texts and so this this word actually effeminate is is the the most crazy difficult word to interpret like in all of scripture you know it's only used twice in the entire new testament it's only used twice once in this reference and another time it literally means to be soft you know, and, by so, and, it, and even that brings up connotations to us, but, but it, means soft, it, it means soft clothing, like a rich man's clothing, like, like you see a guy in a fine suit and you're like, whoo, like we, uh, my wife and I, by the way, God bless you, church, for sending us, we had an opportunity this last week for, to go out for our 16-year anniversary and went to a bed and breakfast that the, you know, the church got us a year ago, so finally got that out, you know, man, we slid into these sheets, don't get your mind on anything, it shouldn't be on, but we slid into these sheets, and I was like, oh, my gosh, these are amazing sheets. I was like, I have never been on anything this nice before. And Misty was like, look at the tag. Let's see what we got. So we looked at the tag, and, you know, we're the nation of smartphones. So I look up on my smartphone, the company, come, $143 for those sheets. I said, well, it's no wonder we've never experienced, you know. <laughs> so... 143, And then my wife tries to justify it. She said, this is a total rabbit trail, but it's fun. I like to beat her up a little bit. She says, well, I wonder how long they last. I was like, when was the last time you wore out a set of our cheap sheets? You know, the $20 set. Like, I've had some of those since we've been married. You know what I mean? Those 16 long years we've had those sheets, and they're not worn out yet. You know, how you got to justify $143? I'm for? telling you, they were pretty nice. But the very definition of those sheets is the word effeminate, and it's natural connotation. So as a result of that, it becomes incredibly difficult to interpret what's actually being stated, because in the context of that which is being said in this scripture, you know, effeminate being listed on on account of a, a list of sins, you know, if it's talking about soft, rich clothing, soft knife sheets, $140 sheets, you know, if that's what it's talking about, obviously we're talking about a figurative usage of the word here as it's interpreted in that text. Well, we don't have anything in scripture that allows us to interpret what that means. You know, the first thing we do is we look at the context the second thing we do is we look at all of scripture where else was this word repeated so that we can have some kind of contextual clue by the way that the translators used it within the text you know so if you see that effeminate you know is applied to girly men for example it is not but let's just say it was and 10 times in the scripture all 10 uses of the word were for girly men well then you know that that's what that, that that's probably the interpretation that's accurate in respect to that word we don't have that with this word there's only two uses, one figurative, this is the one, and one that's absolutely literal. So it's, it's a painful process to actually excavate the truth of what's being said with this one particular controversial word. So in light of that, let's take a look at a few different interpretations. So, you know, so we have no idea what to render it. Well, let's use our common sense. Let's think about this a little bit. Jesus, or the, Paul must have been condemning the rich, All right? We're talking about nice clothing, right? So in this list, he must be condemning the rich. But you and I both know that to be rich is nothing. It's, there's no sin in being rich. It's coveting after money and your neighbor's money and you know, letting, being greed and going after all that, making money your God. Obviously, that's all bad. But money in itself is not bad. If money in itself was bad, we would have to exclude all of the patriarchs. You know, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, who were crazy, filthy rich. We'd literally have to exclude them from, well, I'm sorry, they were filthy sinners, according to this list. So clearly, that's not an interpretation that we can come to. So clearly not talking about that. So wearing nice clothing. Interpretation number two. Let's take it extremely literal. In this list of sins, like being drunk and sleeping with your neighbor's wife and all this stuff, fornication, in other words, all that stuff, adultery, that's listed on this list, you know, wearing nice clothing, obviously, is a sin. You know, but we have the example of Jesus himself. Do you remember? That when he was at the cross being crucified, they stripped all of his belongings, all the stuff off of his body. He was crucified naked, as far as I know. One of the things that they took off his body was a coat. It was a jacket, an overcoat. Do you know that they wrestled over that? They said, whoa, 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 whoa. That's too valuable. Let's not rip that. Let's draw lots and see who gets it. It was too valuable for them to rip and separate. They kept it whole. You know, and then paper, rock, scissor over who was going to get it, right? So we know that by the context, Jesus himself wore extremely nice, or at least one item of extremely nice clothes. You know, so clearly, wearing nice clothing cannot be something that would find itself to a list of sins of which Jesus obviously did not partake in. So toss that one completely out of your minds. The next one, it applies to, to a soft person, meaning to someone who's unwilling to get their hands dirty. You know, uh, maybe somebody who's spoiled, if you will. Some interpreters have gone so far to actually say, you know, maybe that they're, that they're lazy, you know, they're, they're, they refuse to work, they want somebody else. This one has the most validity as you're looking at it. And as you, as, you, as you consider it logically, as you consider it within the text, and you consider the ramifications of applying that word, you know, figuratively to an individual, and calling it sin. Well, what does that mean? You know, somebody who's, who's, who's just absolutely lazy, not willing to get their hands dirty, oh, that's for somebody else to do. You know, obviously, you know, that could be relegated as a sin. And then the fourth one, which is the translation that these interpreters of King James went to, is that they say that it's, it means morally weak. And here's what they say about it. It says, we know that the English effeminate can be translated from the Greek word, which means soft. It can mean soft like fine fabric of a rich man's clothes or it can mean morally soft such as undisciplined, lazy, or easily influenced. The Greeks in the first century Romans, or excuse me, two Greeks in the first century Romans, these traits were associated with women uh, who were seen as morally weaker than men, obsessed with beauty and self-indulgence. Anyone morally weak, passive, uh, passive, easily influenced, or vain fits the fits better with the covetous drunkards, adulterers, and the like described in these verses. So the the problem with this idea That we can relegate effeminate to being morally weak really is that I think it's out of our imagination. Uh, In everything that I researched, I could find no connection to simply relegating this word to being morally weak. And so it seems to be, based on my uh, estimation, it seems to be literally an invention of the interpretation of an original Greek word that I will admit is incredibly, incredibly difficult to interpret. So, with that said, I think the only recourse is to go back to those who have studied. Studied thoroughly the language. So those who are Greek scholars who have interpreted this, who have gone through all of the painstaking research you know, to be able to come to truth to accurately translate the word of God so that you and I can have truth before him, right? So that's to me that's, uh, that's the natural next place to go. And out of that Thayer's lexicon, Greek lexicon says metaphorically speaking effeminate is referring to a boy kept for homosexual relations with a man or a male prostitute. Remembering, I said the rendering in Romans 1 was not this. Thayers is now saying that this is actually where we see this come in. So effeminate is referring to a boy kept for homosexual relations with a man or could be considered a male prostitute. The, the book of Strong's, which was actually copyrighted, copyrighted in 1890, the book of Strong's, Strong's Concordance actually concurs with this. It says, in fact, that yes, that, that this is a reference to young boys who were kept you know, uh, for sexual practices. And again, mothers and you know dads, this is where it, it gets a bit graphic. Okay, so, so here's what we have actually playing out according to these Greek lexicons and according to the Strong's Concordance and, and according to a multitude of hours invested in researching this and looking at it contextually in the Greek manuscripts and, and, and everything. It's very specific specifically in this text, the word is very specifically referring to the recipient of the intercourse, not the aggressor. And so essentially what you're seeing is that if there, there was a man in a house and of in Rome, the affluent man would often partake of this practice. The affluent man, the aggressor of this homosexual act, is not implicated in the word effeminate. The one who's actually the recipient in this relationship is the one who's actually implicated in this very specific word, in its very specific interpretation, in its original language. Are you following me so far? Now, you and I both know that if a young man was the recipient of such, ter- you know, such terrible behavior, that he cannot be counted among a list of sinners. You know, if anything, he's a, he's a victim of a horrific you know, crime uh, against what is natural, against humanity, against God first and foremost. So you and I know j- that there's no way that this individual could be accounted on a list of sins. And again, it's specifically referring to this individual. So that brings me further in my research. As I actually got into the history of, of, of Greeks and Rome, I found out that it wasn't only a slave boy who would enter into this type of relationship. But that it was young men who would actually enter in willingly, in exchange for certain benefits like education, like social status, like uh, wealth and, and money and gifts and watches or not watches, like, <laughs> Rolexes, Lexus, you know, Mercedes, Bens, you know, no, but whatever, would the, whatever would be the equivalent in their culture, they would actually enter into. A favorable relationship with a wealthy aristocrat in an effort to receive something from that relationship. Okay? So at this point, then, those who would concede, you know, who are pro homosexuality in the Bible, those who would concede that this is the proper interpretation of this text, they go on to further say that, well, well then what is being described is actually prostitution. So it's not, it's not monogamous homosexual activity. What's being described is, is, is some form of, of crazy prostitution. And then their logic further goes on to say, look, you know, heterosexual relationships within the context of marriage, you know, sex in that context is perfectly okay between a man and a woman. But prostitution, heterosexual prostitution clearly is outlawed. So the logic then is that, that monogamous homosexual relationships are perfectly fine, but then homosexual prostitution is something that's outlawed. Look, what I have to say is this. I, I, I agree with them, by the way. I, I think that by conclusion, we have to say, yeah, it, this, is some kind of, this is some kind of prostitution. I mean, what is prostitution, after all? Selling your body for some financial benefit, right? And that's what we're seeing these young men do. The problem is... We're seeing some of these young men enter into this relationship naturally. They're not being forced, coerced. They're not slaves. They're agreeing to enter into this relationship. What do you call a young man who's having sex with another man? Homosexuals. So, though I agree with their interpretation that this appears to be some kind of prostitution, it is, however, a willing prostitution. They're willingly prostituting themselves. They're not being coerced, as far as my research has uh, yielded. They're literally entering in, all by, of their own accord, into this homosexual relationship. Well, it's homosexuality, if by any other name. So, uh, as a result of that, you know, the, this, this word effeminate, you know, it, it cannot apply to the girly guy it just it, it can't in our interpretation of that word in our culture it just it doesn't stand up to reason but what it obviously does point to is some kind of homosexual activity And I think we see a circular reference as it was typically the rich Romans who would enter into this activity, you know, who would bring in these boys into their home. I think that we see the circular reference back to this word rich clothing, soft clothing, clothing of a rich guy, $150 sheets. You know, we see that reference back to them. I think that's where it's captured in that it was typically the rich that would engage in this activity. So it's kind of a circular reference, you know, that brings out this word effeminate. Further, I think we find this translation, uh, translated as the word effeminate, because it, again, is very specifically referring to the receiver of intercourse, not the aggressor. And as a result of that, obviously that individual is fulfilling the female role of that sexual relationship, i.e., he's a little bit more feminine in nature. So I think that's where we come to the translation. Uh, But again, in the end, if by any other name, it is simply still called homosexuality. So their their breakdown further comes in when we look at the next word. You know, the next word is called arsenokoites. Arsenokoites, you know, in the original language. You can see on the board some of the translations there. Out of the original text, uh, this particular word again—it's the next one in transition in this 1 Corinthians chapter six and verse nine. It's the next one rendered homosexuality in a number of Bibles, including my NISB. But in the old, or, uh, excuse me, in the uh, King James version, it's rendered "those who abuse themselves with mankind" or some small variant of that. You'll see it throughout. So this is the actual word that we're talking about, and probably the most critical as we look at it is homosexuality in a monogamous relationship endorsed in scripture or is it not? Is it still considered sin? This is probably the most critical word you know, that we're going to look at. Now, this word is actually the, the breakdown of two different words. So it's a compound word in the Greek. First one being arson. Second one being koite. The first one means male. The koite actually means bed. Very specifically means bed. Uh, more than that, there's an inference that it's not just a bed, but it's a sexual bed. Okay? So man, sexual bed. Now, as a result of this, they would say, look, this particular word "arsenquete" it doesn't it doesn't actually talk about homosexual, homosexuals. You know, it's not talking about you know men having sex with other men. What it's talking about is a promiscuous, a promiscuous male. See, it says men in their in their beds, or sexual intercourse in their beds. So, it, so it's it's a promiscuous male that we're talking about. Uh, unfortunately, again, this this particular rending it doesn't hold up. Uh, to, to uh, you know to a good rigorous study of the word uh, uh, mind you <laughs> mind you I spent hours and hours and hours and hours and I was cross-eyed and I turned blue at one point and, and I may have passed out in the middle somewhere a long agonizing study you know to come to the point uh, where I could see uh, the fullness of actually what was being stated you know in these words like the very next natural step for us is to literally look at the original texts that are extra biblical. You know, so Josephus' writings, he was a, a Jewish historian or, you know, there are a number of other classical writings from this time period. And in those classical writings, they always interpret this particular word, which is apparently used more outside of the Bible than it was inside. They always interpret it to be sodomy, which we both know to be, you know, homosexuality, which is sex between men. So bear that in mind as we continue to move forward. But, you know, looking at all the extra-biblical texts, this particular word rendered homosexuality. In our Bibles, uh, it was rendered sodomy, you know, in a number of other accounts, extra-biblical biblical accounts. And so I want to take a look at this one guy's... Uh, article. It's called The Hermeneutical Issues with the Use of the Bible to Justify the Acceptance of Homosexual Practice. He's got to be intellectual, because I'd have called it something different. I mean, I I don't even know if you can read all of that together, and it's all like, and he's screaming at me with cap locks. So uh, he's got to be intellectual. So his name is Gunther Haas. He's from Redeemer College in Ontario, Canada, and he points out that that all other similar compound endings of Koite Uh, that the first half of the word actually specifies the object. He renders it sleeping, uh, just for the sake of ease here, Uh, or its scene or sphere. That is, the first part always functions in an adverbial sense. So in other words, what he's saying is, you know, when we look at the Greek texts and we look at the lexicons, the next phase in our journey is to actually look at this compound word to break it up and then trace its roots in Scripture. Where else was this word used? All throughout Scripture. Where else was it used, and can we glean any truth from the way that it was used in the original context of Scripture? Obviously, koite, we found out, that was translated a number of different times, but with a different compound uh, commanding word or object of the word right in front. So he continues, this is because koite has a verbal force, and most, not all instances, arsino denotes the object. Hence, the compound word refers to those who sleep with males and denotes male homosexual activity without qualification. Other examples are dulocoite, which is sexual relationship with a slave, or mitrocoite, which is sexual relations with your mother. Ugh. And, and polu koitos, slightly a different variant there on the end sexual relations with many people, so in other words, that would be the one who 's sexually promiscuous so do you remember when we opened up we talked about the the, the word, or the uh, the translations out of Leviticus uh, as of specific note, chapter twenty and verse thirteen out of Leviticus. Interestingly, the Greek Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the old Hebrew, te- you know, the, the, it was originally in Hebrew, but it was translated into Greek. This would be the Bible that Jesus and Paul quoted from. So it's the Septuagint. In the Septuagint, the Septuagint translation of, Le- it, ugh, of Leviticus chapter 20 and verse 13 actually has arsino and koite side by side. Not as a compound word, but side by side. You know, it, and you'll remember that that particular verse was the one that outlawed homosexuality in any form, right? And we understand that it's of the you know the holiness code and Leviticus, and that it was to the Israel's, and that it was like a billion years ago, and not a reference to lack of creation, just a joke. So. You know, so we, we understand that within the context what it is, but isn't it interesting that Paul, in him, and uh, his admonition, or uh, let me just say it this way, in his list of sins that he outlines in the New Testament, that he would have taken the very same word that was described in Leviticus as homosexual outlaw, uh, outlawed homosexual activity in any sort. Isn't it interesting that he took that word and he combines it, making it a compound word in the Greek New Testament? find that fascinating. It seems obvious, especially since this word really is very difficult to find in any Greek text prior to Paul's mention of it in Scripture. You know, so it's very, so it's as if he almost made the word up. You know, but, but when, you, when you look at that, it, it seems to stand to reason that the origin of that particular word, arsenokoite, actually comes from Leviticus, from the Septuagint version of the translation that says that all homosexual activity is completely outlawed or is an abomination before God. So if he took the very words from Leviticus to use it to translate in the New Testament, doesn't it stand to reason that the same logic could be applied to the context that he took it from? In other words, out of Leviticus it says that it's all homosexual activity is outlawed. Doesn't it stand the reason that if he's going to use the very same word that he would also apply the very same interpretation to when he's using that word in the New Testament? Both Greek and according to the Septuagint anyway. Does that make sense? Are you following me so far? You know, so uh, unfortunately, uh, again, there's a bit of a breakdown. And after crazy, mind-bending study this last week over two words, I found out that the Greek lexicons that I've always used are actually accurate in their interpretation. That this word in the New Testament should be rendered homosexual and homosexual activity. So I'm sorry to say uh, the translation stands. You know, in the, uh, yeah, looking at First Timothy 1 and chapter 8, this will be the last scripture that we use or that we look at that was, you know, reinterpreted. Again, starting in verse 8. But we know that the law is good. If one uses it, uh, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Realizing the fact that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and the sinners, for the unholy and the profane, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers, and for immoral men and homosexuals, and kidnappers and liars and perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching, according to the glorious gospel, the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Obviously, verse 10 carries the word homosexual. Turns out that that very word is arsenokoite. It's the same word that we just definitively answered to be interpreted accurately as homosexual so when you see that in this list in fact when you see that rendering anywhere in the new testament that's the word you know and that is an accurate interpretation i can give you my notes it's painful okay <laughs> so i want to leave you with this in in first area uh, in in romans chapter one we talked about how in verse 32 you know, it said that what happens in a culture that begins to remove itself from God is that you'll see people who, who not only partake in these sinful activities, of which it names a huge list, they not only partake in those activities, they begin to trumpet them and call what is evil good and what is good evil. We see the same thing here as it relates to coming against what they call sound teaching. Look guys, the reality is we, we have a culture right now that's being bombarded with this idea. Guys, I passed a sign in a church in our own community this week, a big rainbow sign. I didn't catch everything that it said, but I believe I properly caught the inference that said, you know, something about, you know, all welcome here or or whatever. And that's true. Everybody's welcome here. Goodness sakes, if if sin was the qualification, everybody would have to get up and leave, you know. You know, we all say stupid stuff. I made a joke this morning, by the way, Chris, that I probably shouldn't have made. The Lord convicted me <laughs> earlier, so sorry about that. <laughs> we all, you know what? I mean, we all fall short, on, but you know, we don't live a lifestyle of falling short. We, we, we catch it, we repent, we move away from that stuff. We flee from the appearance of evil. We just, we, just, we move away from that stuff. And we're in a culture right now that is calling what is good evil and what is evil good and they're trumpeting it from the rooftop such that you know churches and denominations are falling to this you know false excavation of the word an excavation i hope that i have accurately proved or adequately rather proved to you over the last couple of weeks you know uh, you know exegesis of the scripture that's just flawed you know and god bless them i if i was in their shoes i'd be looking for some scriptural support too i would be but unfortunately their renderings have been inaccurate and have fallen short at best it doesn't excuse our behavior it doesn't excuse our pursuit i remember one time some time back there was a wonderful breakfast restaurant that i decided i'm going to take my i'm going to take my wife to we're going to blast out there for breakfast it's in like the brookside area of kansas city you know, and here we were, it was this cool place, man, it was hopping, great coffee, the whole nine, and, and we're there in the checkout aisle, and, and, uh, or uh, whatever you want to call it, the, you know, at the cash register, we're in line, and right in front of us are two lesbian ladies, man, they are going nuts, I mean, all over each other, just tongues down their throat, I'm like standing here, and they're right there, yeah, I mean. I'm like come come look I look, I'm married to this like been married to her forever but you're not going to see me like mount her on the in the front of the cash register or, like stick my tongue down her throat like this is outrageous so we have to understand look that it, when when you when you make a judgment like look this is socially inappropriate you have to understand that you're being relegated to the place of a bigot You know I didn't say a word to those people I didn't have any right to say much to them frankly and I didn't sure didn't want to start up a Facebook war (laughs) as Chris always does (laughs) you know but we have a right and we have a responsibility to stand for what we believe in but to do that within love look if we find our place if we find ourselves in a place of being confronted by this type of activity out there can I just say if you don't have the ability to respond out of the proper heart of love if you don't have compassion stir up on the inside of you shut up don't say a word and definitely do not go out to your car and grab your "God hates fags" sign and start walking around the front of the. That's what people do. It's outrageous. There's none of this that's founded in the love of Jesus, which you and I have been called and commissioned to walk into. So while we take a subject that you know and we and we break down the scriptures that have been justified by the King James Bible by the. Uh, by uh, those uh, who, who, who you know what who frankly who want to have a relationship with Jesus but who feel like they've been excluded because of what the Bible says right why else would they even be concerned with translating the Bible these are these are our friends and we need to love them into the kingdom like that first illustration of Amy you know can we commit to doing that I felt like the other day before this sermon series that the Lord said <coughs> that the Lord said he was going to use me to move the mountain of homosexuality. This weirdo, <laughs> this, you know, this this man's man <laughs> out in the middle of the, the field of Warrensburg. <laughs> it kind of uses me to do, do that. Maybe this series, I don't know, but I know this. It's not picketing. It's not hate. It's not bigotry. It's love that's going to win, folks. And though we approach this intellectually because I believe that we have to owe it to the bible we owe it to jesus we owe it to our faith to excavate the truth of scripture and to stand firm on the rock of that scripture we owe it to him and our relationship with him to come to solid conclusions on especially very very controversial topics but it doesn't give us any license to ourself sin amen let me read one scripture in closing first thessalonians chapter four starting in verse two it says For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and in honor. Not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. And that no man transgress or defraud his brother in a matter. Because the Lord is the avenger in all things just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but but is rejecting God who gives the Holy Spirit to you. Father, we lift up this topic to you. And this morning, may we be so bold as to ask that homosexuals would come and be a part of our church. That fornicators would come and be a part of our church. That drug addicts would come and be a part of our church. That liars and adulterers and abusers and weirdos would come and be a part of our church. Father, we just say we welcome them at Harvest Fellowship. We welcome them here, God. We just say that you're worthy of receiving them just as much as the rich man, or just as much as the normal, or just as much as the seemingly outward apparent righteous guy. You're worthy of them, God. And we'll give our lives to bring them into the kingdom. Would you release an anointing that we could fulfill the declaration of the prophetic name that you have given us, God, that we would see the harvest that you yourself declared as white, as ripe, as ready? Help us, Father, to fulfill that mandate right here in this place, no matter who the recipient is, in Jesus' name. Amen.